Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning. We're covering so many verses, I'm not going to have you stand to read them. But, uh, let's do pray one more time. Father, we do once again thank you. You are so, so good to us. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Father, I pray you would just open hearts and minds today. Let your Holy Spirit penetrate people that they may know the truth. I ask in your name, amen. Bob was in serious trouble. He once again had forgotten his wedding anniversary. His wife was really upset. In fact, she was enraged. She told her husband that to make up for all the forgotten anniversaries, she now wanted a brand new shiny Ferrari. She told him, tomorrow morning I expect to find a gift in the driveway that goes from zero to 206 seconds, and it had better be there. The next morning, Bob got up early and left for work. When his wife woke up, she looked out the window, and sure enough, there was a box gift-wrapped in the middle of the driveway. Confused, the wife put on her robe and ran out to the driveway and brought the box back into the house. She opened it and found a brand new shiny bathroom scale. Bob has been missing since Friday. Wouldn't it be awful to expect something wonderful only to be given a lesser gift? Well, this morning, we're going to see the exact opposite in the life of David. He expected to build God a house, and instead, God is going to build him an everlasting dynasty. So to sum up where we are this morning, in chapter 6, David was jubilant, his wife, Michal, was militant, but this morning, we're going to see God establish a covenant. Look at verse 8, please. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Don't miss in verse 8 where God reminds David that he took him from the sheepfold to be the ruler over God's people. 
If you are a Christian this morning, the same thing is also true of you. God has taken you from somewhere to place you somewhere greater. And where God has taken us is far more impressive than from a sheepfold. Listen to the words of Colossians 1.13. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I just want to encourage us because I know that sometimes we can look at our lives and while we can certainly see some changes, sometimes the kingdom of heaven can look an awful long ways away. And so we ask ourselves, am I really growing? Am I truly on this path to glory? Here is one reason why we don't see the growth that we wish we, that we did sometimes. It's because that growth takes time. And often it's not very noticeable in the short term, and that can lead to us feeling stagnant in our faith. I don't know how many of you did this with your kids, but when I was young, my parents would take me to a door frame and mark my growth with a pencil mark. But they didn't do it every day or even every week. It might be a month or so before they would measure me again. And of course, the reason is that if they did it every day, the growth would have been so small that it could not have been measured. But was I still growing? Yes, I was. And over the years, you could see that by the ascending pencil marks on the door frame. My friends, that's also how it is with our spiritual growth. If we are desiring to grow and doing the things that facilitate that, like prayer, Bible study, and church attendance, we will grow. And we can be sure that the Lord will transfer us fully mature into the kingdom of his dear son. Just keep in mind that God's plan for you includes the past, the present, and the future. God then says, you're a shepherd, David. That's why I called you. That's what I saw in you. That's what I like about you. You're not a builder of buildings. You're a herder of sheep. You cared for them. You went after them. And you had a heart for them. That's who you are. That's where I found you. And that's why I called you. Can I encourage us all just to be the people that God made us to be? I'm speaking to myself here because there are certain teachers that I listen to who are infinitely more effective and skilled than I am. And if I'm not careful, I can have the propensity to look at their gifting and then look at my gifting and then disillusionment can set in. And that's when I have to remind myself that God didn't call me to be like them. He called me to be Bill Scott, and so I need to be the best possible version of Bill Scott that I can be. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, 
Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. The concept of rest began when God, with God's rest when he completed creation. And this was a basis for Israel's observance of the Sabbath. After God delivered them from Egypt, he promised them rest in their own land. But the concept of rest goes beyond any of these matters because it speaks also of the spiritual rest that believers have in Christ. The concept also looks ahead to Israel's future kingdom and the rest that God's people will enjoy when they when Jesus finally sets upon David's throne. But rest is something that truly won't occur until we are finally home. Listen to Hebrews 2.8. Speaking of Jesus, we are told, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now listen to the rest of the verse. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. And isn't that true? We all know that the victory was won on the cross, but when you watch the news, it sure doesn't seem like everything is subjected to Christ. But that is only because history is just playing out what God has already ordained. One day there will be a Sabbath rest for all the people of God. Verse 12, please. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here the important word kingdom is now introduced into the passage. What is going on here? Basically, we are seeing God establish a covenant with David. So let's do a quick overview of God's covenants. Right after mankind sinned in Genesis 3, God promises a redeemer that will crush the serpent's head. And then Adam has Cain, who was wicked, and killed his brother Abel. And so God appointed, the Hebrew word for appointed is Seth, and so God appoints Seth to take Abel's place. The line of Seth becomes wicked, but God preserves a man named Noah. Noah has three kids, Shem, Ham, and Curly. Just kidding. He has Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Japhethites become the Europeans. They become the white boys. As a matter of fact, did you know the Hebrew word for Japhethites is he who cannot jump? <laughs> That's not true either. Actually, it means to spread out, which is what they did. But God doesn't send the Messiah through any of them. The Bible says, blessed be the God of Shem. Now, the word Shem means the name. These people became the Semites, of which we get the Semitic Jews. God will send the Messiah through the Jewish people. Let me ask you a question. Will God ever renege upon his covenant to bring us into heaven? No, he will not. 
if we have been truly converted and regenerated, we are secure as God is the one who has made the covenant with us. Now, the only way to truly enjoy that covenant and that relationship with God is by living a life of obedience to his word. And the fabulous thing about that is, is when God establishes a covenant, we can be sure he will be the one making sure that it will happen. A great example is found in the life of Abram before his name was changed to Abraham. In answer to Abram's request for proof that God would give him an inheritance, God instructs Abram to draw up the equivalent of a modern-day contract. You see, in Abram's day, when two people entered into a legal agreement, they did so by splitting an animal in two and standing in the midst of that carcass. They would then clasp each other's wrist to show they were deadly serious about keeping up their end of the bargain. Basically, they were saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, let me be like this slaughtered animal. Let me read you the account of this out of Genesis 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. Throughout scripture, birds almost always symbolize evil. The picture here is that while Abram waited for God to meet him, he did his best to keep evil at bay, shooing away the birds of doubt and unbelief. But when Abram awoke, he saw that the meat on either side of him had been barbecued. God had been there, not meeting Abram halfway as the custom was, but by walking the entire length alone. And this is still the way of God. While we try and chase away the birds of evil which threaten our families and our church, we make vows and we make promises, but because in our flesh dwells no good thing, like Abram, we eventually become exhausted in trying. Times don't change. People with sincere hearts say, we will keep our promises. But the problem with signing contracts and making vows and keeping promises is they fail to factor into the equation a huge component, and that is our flesh. Romans 7 says, for what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? God is acutely aware of this, my friends. That's why he says, I will wait until you are as tired as Abram was. Then I'll come through on my own. I don't want you to sign a contract or make a promise. I know what you're made of. I know your frailty. So I'm not going to meet you halfway. I'm going to do the whole thing myself. Spurgeon said, Jesus always carries the heavy end of the cross, and he always sleeps on the windy side of the hill. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen unto the glory of God by us. Well, what then is our part? Our part is not to stand in the midst of an animal cut in two, but to kneel at a cross and trust him and him alone to come through for us. Verse 14, please. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. We need to realize that these verses before us have a near and a future fulfillment. They apply initially to Solomon, but the ultimate fulfillment lies with God's own son, the Lord Jesus. One day, Jesus was engaged in a searching conversation with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked them, Who do you say that I am? It was Peter who answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's almost certain that Peter had in mind the promise of verse 14 that we are looking at this morning. Peter had recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the offspring of David, who was God's son. In response, Jesus affirmed Peter's insight and said, On this rock I will build. Now David's son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem in which the ark of God was placed. But the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 found its true fulfillment in Christ. He was the offspring of David, in whom the purpose of God would finally reach its end. As promised, this son of David would build a house for the Lord's name. It would not now, however, be a temple in Jerusalem, but it would be his church. Those whom Jesus would gather to himself would become a spiritual house, of which the temple built by Solomon was only a shadow. The house that the Lord had promised to build for David, however, will be of interest throughout the rest of the Bible. Everything that the Old Testament says about the Messiah to come particularly in the books of the prophets and the Psalms will look back 
to this promise. Look at verse 18, please. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Remember the words of the hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That's what verse 18 reminds me of. The word Ebenezer means hitherto the Lord is with us. And this is David's Ebenezer. He is saying, God, in everything that I've attained, you are the one who has brought me this far. And likewise, everything that we have is only by the grace of God. David says in verse 19 that this was a small thing in your sight. That Hebrew word for small is used only two times in the Old Testament. And it refers to the little finger, or what we would call the pinky. Now, I like that. David said, up to this point, all that you have done for me is a small thing. It's like all the effort that it took was for you to raise your pinky, and it was done. But in comparison, you have so much more and bigger and better things planned for me that the thought of it makes my head swim in gratitude. If David had owned a New Testament, I bet he would have highlighted Ephesians 3.20 and underlined it, where we read these words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. It came from God himself, according to your own heart, David said. Now, this is a wonderful expression of God's gracious sovereignty and freedom in all things. He did not choose Israel because they were a more impressive nation than the others, but simply because God chose to love them. Likewise, he did not choose David because of some qualities in that man, but simply because God chose to set his heart upon David. The very great qualities of David as a man of God, as a man of God are a consequence of God's grace towards him, not the reason for it. But think about it. A poet and a songwriter David was a very, very verbal man. But here we find him tongue-tied, silenced by God's grace and kindness. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel? the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, 
the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. In the language of the Bible, to praise God means to declare what he has done and to declare what he is like. Now, praise does not have to involve music. The essential thing is that the great deeds of the Lord, as well as his power and his goodness, are made known. All such speech is classified as praise. And true praise can only come from a person who is humbled by what the Lord has done for them. John Newton's famous hymn comes from an experience like David's in this respect. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And just as we have seen something in the logic of praise, declaring what God has done, that leads us to declaring what God is like. We now see the wonderful link between praise and prayer. How does a person who praises the Lord pray to the Lord? Well, listen to David's prayer and see how it is shaped by his praise. David's prayer was that the Lord would do what he had promised to do. In this way, it was an anticipation of the prayer Jesus taught his disciples when he said to pray, your kingdom come. This, like the Lord's prayer, is the kind of prayer that can only be prayed by a person who knows what God has promised and believes that God is good. In other words, prayer like this only arises from praise like David's. That is why this prayer is so full of confidence. David was not caught up with his own concerns, ideas, desires, or ambitions. His prayer was inspired by the word of the Lord that he had heard. Verse 25. I know you can smell that chili. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now we learned last week that uh, David already had a house, and a very fine house it was. However, the Lord appeared to have no interest whatsoever in David's royal residence. Its cedar panels did not impress him at all, because the Lord intended to make for David another kind of house, a different kind of house. This is the house that God cared about. The house of David was not to be a palace, but instead a royal dynasty. Look at verse 27. Let me ask you, 
what is truth? What do we truly know in this life? Of what things can we be absolutely sure? To find out, I have just a couple strange questions for you. Here's the first. When is now? Seriously, pinpoint now. You can never pinpoint it. Because when you do, by the time you do, now is gone. Now is elusive. In an instant, now becomes then. Here's another question. Where is here? If you say that it is where you are, 7.5 billion people on earth will disagree with you. So we are left with the question, what can we be absolutely sure of? Is there anything in this life that is absolutely and always true? Well, if you leave God out of that equation, you can have no answer because he is the ultimate and only standard for such things. He is the only one who transcends both time and space. And if we ignore that almighty God, we will end up as lost and as misguided as Pilate of Scripture. As he stood bewildered in front of Christ and asked the rhetorical question, what is truth? Think about that. Pilate was gazing on him who was the embodiment of truth itself, and he walked away from it. So are we going to wash our hands of Christ like Pilate did, or will we obey him and come to truly know the words, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free? As we close, allow me to sum up all of chapter 7. Very often, the good is the enemy of the best. We said last week, there are some things that are goodly, but they're not godly. Now, David brings this request before God to build a temple out of a perfect motive and a sincere heart, and yet God says no to that request. And like that, sometimes we can bring proposals and ideas that God can look at, and they are godly ideas. And nobody, even one as spiritual as whoever Nathan is in our lives, can see anything wrong with that idea. And so our plans can meet this very strict criteria that our hearts are pure, and we're doing it as a servant of the Lord, and yet God can still say no. But what this passage and chapter has taught us is that when God does say no, and you look at it, you think, how could God possibly say no to this request? Always realize that if God does say no, it's only that he might say yes to something even better. I think most of us can identify with this this morning. 
you look back over your life and you can see God slamming one door after another. Things like, Lord, that would have been a great house to buy. Or, Lord, he would have been a great husband. Or, Lord, that woman is the woman for me. And then you see that man or woman 30 years later, and all you can do is weep in gratitude. Of course, in fairness, they may be looking at us thinking the exact same thing. But those times can be so confusing because our motives are right before God. And so what we have to do in those circumstances is just sit back and give the Lord some time. Because if we wait six days or six months or six years, we will see that what God really wanted to do, and all we have to do, can do then is praise God for his mighty wisdom in our lives. Here's the really the bullet point of chapter 7. God's servants must learn to accept the disappointments of life because sometimes disappointments are God's appointments. When God says no, he always tempers our disappointments with wonderful blessings greater than any we could have anticipated or expected. And so let us trust him today. And Father, that is what we want to do. Sometimes, Lord, we cannot understand your ways because you are so infinitely higher and wiser than we are. Help us to also realize, Lord, that you look at our lives from the end of the beginning. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the patience and the courage, Lord, and the trust that when you don't do things the way that we think you should do things, Father, that we would know that your ways are always the best because you are the perfect Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.